Suspense, Adventure, Mystery, Danger, Courage, Sorcerer, Roy Scheider in a new film by William Friedkin, Sorcerer, rated PG, starts Friday in a theater near you. Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 34, Sorcerer. I will be using the 121-minute version on the first available DVD issued. No special edition used. If you press play on that DVD now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. FBI warning engaged. Homeland Security. Piracy is not a victimless crime. No, but if there's more information, go to a piracy website. And now you should see the opening title credit. Which is inherently interesting because this is two major film studios that co-produced this. Yeah, Paramount and... Universal. Yeah. Now, after several years of pushing the dramatic success of The Exorcist, William Friedkin finally settled on making another cinematic interpretation from Georges Arnaud's 1950 French novel La Salerie de la Pue, or The Wages of Fear. Already a famous 1953 film in France, Friedkin would go to dramatic lengths to tell this story in a new way. Released on the 24th of June, 1977, Sorcerer bombed heavily at the box office and never made back its $22 million budget. That same weekend, George Lucas premiered Star Wars, which destroyed most films it played against for the next 90 days. In the last 10 years, Sorcerer has made a comeback and is referenced by filmmakers such as Quentin Tarantino, Wes Anderson, and Damien Chazelle as one of the most important films of the 1970s. And now, with me here in the Hacienda to talk about Sorcerer is the ever-present Dave Anderson. Greetings. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Now, I saw The Sorcerer on basic cable sometime in the early 90s. I caught it right about in the middle with the uh, tree trunk scene, mm-hmm. and I was like, what the fuck is this? And I didn't see the first half for about uh, 10 years. I think I caught it on IFC, and then, of course, the first time it became available on DVD, I purchased it. So when was the first time you saw Sorcerer, and what did you think? Well, as it turns out, I believe that the first time I saw it, or at least the first time that it counts, was relatively recently, you know, two or three weeks ago. You're kidding. No, it's one of those that had always been in my consciousness, and certainly through YouTube-style videos or other documentaries where it's referenced, you know, that's, I think I'd seen so much of it, I had kind of believed that I'd seen it. It's either that or I'd seen it so long ago, none of it was familiar. So, largely, it's brand spanking new to me. Wow. Yeah, no, and it's, it's... but you'd always heard of it. It had a reputation. It had a reputation. It's right up there with a lot of the films from the great creators of this time frame. And I'm sure we'll get to this discussion at some point, whether this now, later in the film, sure, or sure. in the after, where it has such a reputation as a bomb that, I mean, heck, it 
it hasn't been regularly available in my experience from the DVD, the home video, and it doesn't get. I'm not even sure if and where it's streaming for free. I'm sure it's a paid. I checked. I couldn't find one. I'm sure you can rent it on Amazon or something similar. Potentially, maybe for the next nine days. Yeah, but it's one of those where it's it's. I'm sorry, Amazon. Yeah, I I meant Netflix, but yeah. yeah. But it's one of those where, to a large degree, aside from a few dedicated and seemingly growing group of fans, it has vanished from the public consciousness. It's, it's, it doesn't even in the special editions. It editions, almost didn't it, exist in the public consciousness. It, it, you're right. I think to, that's a direct consequence of Star Wars. That is certainly a component of that, I believe, myself. And there's a legacy that gets wrapped up in that and, and the unfortunate consequence of, uh, of Friedkin's career that came after that. Yes. So the, here we've got this bombing in Jerusalem, and we we saw a suspect that we that we think was the bomber, and of course everyone's wearing yarmulkes. Mm-hmm. So the 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 immediate uh, question is: This is a like a Jewish terrorist. So this is at a time in 1977. This came out on Star Wars Day, where terrorism was rampant all the way throughout the world, but the the idea of a Jewish terrorist was actually quite quite new. It was almost like saying, "Yeah, there were there were Brits in Northern Ireland well, blowing uh, stuff up, okay. not IRA." So went against the went, went against are, the grain. Are these Jewish terrorists or are these Palestinian terrorists who are in Jerusalem? Aha! There that was the impression the I understood. The, the impression you got was they were Palestinians that were masquerading as Jews. Correct. Okay, that was the impression I was under. But yeah, this is the second of the two. I don't want to say heroes. Let's go with two of the. This is the second of the four protagonists. Is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, because the first was the hitman who performed his task, and then notice that I, I believe that in that sequence where they're relieved that they survived their attack, Yamaka's are gone. Oh yeah, so they that's do. Why I was suspecting and, this. And they got a they got an escape route to Haifa. Right. Yeah. So. No. Then, yeah, and there's some Arabic. No, no, that that's Yiddish, or I'm sorry, Hebrew up on the on the wall. Um, but that's I, just part of the cover conceptually. Yeah. That that all makes sense. And then the Israeli police force. Yeah. And, and Friedkin, I mean, just, I don't know where he shot this, but I know that most of Sorcerer he shot in the Dominican Republic and some places in Haiti. But, and, I, I, but in I, my research, he had done, this is pretty much internationally filmed. Yeah. You know, so I don't believe that this was necessarily filmed in the Holy Land, but it very well might have been. Because or, it certainly looks authentic. And that is certainly was a huge component in its, at that time, especially exorbitant cost. Well, in, in taking into account what he had already accomplished by this point, like this was five years from The Exorcist, and I'd like to remind all of our listeners, or, or maybe you're not aware of this, The Exorcist is the ninth highest grossing film of all time adjusted for, for inflation. inflation. So after that, uh, William Friedkin could go to any studio and said, I want to make this, and they would say yes. Yes. And uh, this was not um, a crazy movie. Like, you know, Star Wars was $20 million, if I remember correctly, or 20 or 30, well, which is a huge variance. But, you know, this was $22 million. It's not that huge of a budget. Well, it's one of those that adjusted for inflation. It was a fairly significant. Oh, that's true. That's true. You know, yeah. the research that I looked at, and no guarantee that this is accurate, was this essentially equated to $120 million current production. Oh, shit. Right, which is not... Well, unfortunately, these days, that's something of a normal budget. Yeah, yeah, It certainly yeah. plays into some of our current cinematic woes. But I think Star Wars was approximately half of it. 
Well, and that goes that goes against my what I was going to argue next, which was like if you look in the top ten adjusted for inflation, there is no film in the 21st century in that top ten. Are there not? No, it's all you know, Gone with the Wind, The Sound of Music, Avatar. Uh, no, Avatar is like number twelve. Okay. Like it's not too far behind. Right, but it's not. Yeah, it's not in the top ten. Yeah. So what I what I really like about okay, jumping, but the point was the point Exorcist was. was so remarkably profitable profitable yeah. and popular and that's yeah. the interesting thing about these works and not this one necessarily but the exorcist french connection his other pre-debacle film if you will were incredible successes from the you know public perspective financial and then also critical yeah well he won the oscar for best director for for the french connection mm-hmm. french connection won best picture yes and then Exorcist walked away with like eight nominations, mm-hmm. and um, Freakin actually went on this on the press tour for The Exorcist was like pissed that Linda Blair did not get nominated for the role. And then was it like the next year um, Ryan O'Neill's daughter Tatum, Tatum O'Neill was nominated for Paper Moon, Paper Moon right? Yeah. And she was and she won, and she's the youngest I think ever to win. So, but there was this theory until, of was it Anna Paquin? Yeah, until the piano. Yeah, in the in the nineties. And here's the third of our protagonist yeah and what i what i really like about the intro and the intro takes this is one of the criticisms i heard about the film was man it really takes a long time to get into the jungle but this preamble really is what i think is missing out of the treasure of the sierra madre Mm -hmm. and it, it this film really for the first hour reminds me heavily of treasure of the sierra madre you have these people from mixed backgrounds who are all in trouble and they flee to this place just to hide, and they're trying to find something that will solve their problems to get out. Absolutely. And it's it's kind of a classic journey. And right. it, it, what's nice about this, and as you were getting at, is that it's slow, or shall we say methodical. That's probably a better way to put it. And it gives you some necessary background, because if they had just started the movie with the four individuals in the jungle, even if it's just, you know, 45 minutes pre-transportation, you wouldn't be that emotionally invested in them. And frankly, all four of the protagonists are somewhere between deplorable humans and absolute scumbags. Mm -hmm. But this part of them doesn't necessarily make you like them more, but you understand their motivations, which is really important once you get into the meat of the story. Because the story itself is as simple as it gets. Mm -hmm. Take things from A to B. Well, and and in this one with the... the French businessman, actually, I found his story had had the most motivation behind it because it seems like we spend more time with him and there's more quote unquote acting like the, the terrorist is like a whole, whole lot of running and gunning and Schneider the same, same, same way. But this one really establishes Schneider, not Schneider. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what? Deuce Bigelow is not in this? <laughs> oh, crap. I watched the wrong flick. But this one's really interesting in that, yes, you're right. It gives the most background to this individual, who's also the only one who isn't a directly violent individual. Right, he's a white-collar criminal. Right, he's, but he's probably the most scummy of the bunch. I mean, oh. He's embezzling from his, I think it's his wife's family, his wife's father, essentially. Yeah. And just the damage it does is probably more far-reaching. It's certainly more far-reaching than any of the directly violent crimes that the other criminals, let's call them what they are, mm-hmm. were involved in. Now, Scheider didn't purposely he, kill anybody. He was the getaway driver. He was, he, was the, he was the driver. 
and he knew he was getting involved. But, you know, as we say, as we say, nobody says this, but I'm going to say this now. You know, Louis Farrakhan was the driver, too. Yeah. <laughs> so getaway drivers are, are just as guilty. Absolutely. But there's, there's, I just feel like there's more nuance out of this. And for this guy to sort of run away from his problems like this was pretty impactful to me. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the old man, I don't remember his particular issue. Do you remember what his crime was? I hate to ask this when you say the old man. The old man who's in the sorcerer with uh, Roy Scheider. Yeah, he's the hitman. He was from the very first sequence. He's the gentleman who comes up at the elevator. And... Right, 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 right. Okay, sorry. I thought his tale was last, not first. No, I was, no, he, I was yeah, reading the. Uh... That, that, well, that sequence is so short, and it's kind of funny because the way it's presented, since it's the opening scene, there's an expectation. So I'm sure of the audience at the time and me when I watched it. It's like, okay, this means something. Mm-hmm. Where in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't necessarily mean anything at no, all. No, it's just an explanation. Right. Basil Exposition. So this sequence here was filmed in France. I do remember that from all the research. And like I said, that's one of the reasons why this movie is was so expensive for the time. And also, I think, well, absolutely one of the reasons why it is so gripping and engrossing now. You know, shooting on location is a terribly expensive endeavor, from my understanding. And currently, it's, it's so infrequent, it's almost never that from a popular entertainment film that you're going to see this. You know, and it's probably not that common anyway. I mean, how many times? I mean, Treasure of Sierra Madre was certainly not filmed in Mexico. No. But it was outdoors, and it was effective because of that. This is not, you know, the Book of Boba Fett, which is filmed in front of a green screen for the entire thing. Yeah. And visually, it's maybe imperceptible to the general audience, but you can definitely feel it. It's kind of like Mad Max Fury Road. They use real vehicles, and even though you can't necessarily identify it visually, say definitively, okay, that's a car and that one's not a car, you can somehow interpret it subconsciously. Yes. Well, if it was a CGI car, you would be able to tell. They get, they're getting really good. Well, they are. Um, but it's one of those where you can just kind of feel. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, you're right. You can you can tell. But it's hard to point out and say, okay, specifically, what about this is the tell that this is a CGI creation. Oh, God, look at this scene here, which is not a set in um, actually in Friedkin's movies. It doesn't actually like using sets. Um, Regan McNeil's bedroom in the exorcist was a set it was a very mm-hmm. complex built set to, to do special effects had to be it had to be yeah but if you look at the rest of the exorcist and and pretty much all of the french connection there's not a whole lot of sets it's it's all shot um, well the french connection is shot i don't know what percent you know illegally oh yes yeah no permits yeah, no permits yeah especially the car chase scene mm-hmm. yeah but see but this is by far like the longest tail absolutely so you get kind of surprised when this when this character winds up where he winds up mm-hmm. at the time in the movie that he winds up there. It kind of takes you by surprise. And this is an incredibly stressful part of the movie because you can certainly sympathize with this character from the the way he's trying to keep everything desperately together and have everything continue going, and he's just tricking himself into saying everything's going to be fine. All we have to do is. Blah, just get more money from your father. Right. And it takes a long time before he realizes that, oh, there's no way out of the trap I've created for myself. 
in which case he just ejects. Yeah, which is incredibly damaging, I'm sure, to literally everybody involved, including his brother-in-law here, who... Yeah, it's a hell of a sacrifice. Yeah, and and this guy on the right, he was a, a famous French actor. He'd been in some Clouseau movies mm-hmm. in, in the 60s and 70s, and I haven't researched him extensively, but Friedkin was... But I've been reading um, Friedkin's memoirs. Okay. Um because I tried to get that that biography of him, Hurricane Billy, mm-hmm. and it's I don't know, it's like five hundred dollars uh, for a used copy now after he passed away because it's no longer in print. Well, all of a sudden it jumped up right? in public it's demand. Just a more, it's just amazing, right? But two months ago he could have gotten it for five. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I got the guy shot himself. I mean, this is kind of like Andrew Fastow and Sugarland after Enron capsized, right? <laughs> that's that's what I was reminded of last time I saw this. Uh, but. Uh, uh, Anyway, Friedkin uh, loved French cinema, was very aware of it, and actually I, I found, considering his background, you know, this is a guy who didn't go to film school, uh, who didn't go to college. Um, right out of high school, uh, he started working for uh, the mailroom at WGN and then worked his way up to uh, running the floor during uh, live television shoots and uh, then learned how to work a camera, uh, doing some documentary-style stuff, then worked his way up through the 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 live television circuit there. And then in California was doing um, documentary stuff for David O. Wolper of, mm-hmm. of all people, which I've seen his name on hundreds of stuff when I was growing up in the eighties. And it just, he just really, really learned the trade. And I was, I was really surprised in his memoirs. And maybe this is one of those things where people like when they write from, from 20, 30 years on, they just put stuff in like, oh, yeah, I was a huge Godard fan, and I oh, was I, very familiar with I, all of this. All that, right, yes. yeah. Like, oh, yeah, Godard at the age of 25 in the 60s, mm-hmm. sure. But, you know, it's Godard plausible. was, I mean, the French New Wave was very impactful in the 60s. And, and Oh, yeah, it, it made a, it was it was a real thing from what I understand. Yeah, there were cinemas in, in Los Angeles and in, uh, New, in York. New York that were that were playing Godard films and French films. Clouseau, Renoir, and they were playing that stuff pretty much constantly. It's like French films were playing Jerry Lewis movies. It's amazing. That's right. Yeah. I yeah. think we went out on that side of the deal. <laughs> they can have Jerry Lewis. They can fine. have Jerry Lewis. I know. I'm, I'm going to get no hate mail about that. But I'm perfectly, I am perfectly fine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here we go with the Scheider's character uh, going into the church. He's, he's a very good Catholic. and this is So this is one of the things that... Well, I, I don't think he's a very good Catholic. Well, no, he's not a very good but Catholic. There's certainly there is a ruse going on. He sees himself as, and I love that little sign, the Saint Clement. So they're they're counting all of the uh, the tray money, mm-hmm. right? So this, this is, is certainly not 100 percent on the up and up on the priest side. Oh no, no, there's a percentage being taken. Oh, absolutely, of course, yeah, and because everything everything was a take, everything was a scam, everything was a percentage. Particularly if you lived on the East Coast in this this part of town. I just, That's what the movies have told me. <laughs> well, in, in these donation envelopes too, right? It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and it is one of those things that okay. Yeah, this is actually an interesting commentary. I, I really like this touch. Okay, so this is the part where the groom and bride are getting married. Yeah, and she has a black she eye. She has the black eye, and it is one of those that it's inc- it is incredibly troubling. And the whole thing here within the church in, in general is something of a study of contradictions and it could certainly be perceived as hypocrisy, right? Oh, sure. So there is a not even subtle criticism 
of people in the church, and that's not Billy Friedkin, but the priest sure looks like him. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and then the getaway begins. Well, and that's what I found like really interesting about uh, Friedkin's career um, is his his seesawing on the religious tableau. Mm-hmm. So uh, The Exorcist, I think you and I were talking about before, is is really an astounding film because it was so maligned at the time. But if you if you read reviews it, at the time, you actually see that there were, I mean, first of all, like there are I, priests that act in the film. Yes. And then the Vatican was actually very split on it. Yeah, they didn't, there wasn't a, I don't recall reading anywhere where there was a national condemnation of it. Oh, th- there were. I mean, it was certainly I think, controversial. I think Protestant America really freaked out about it. That's very and, possible. And I think that the, well, what I had read in the research um, from other sources, what the, the church was extremely split. Mm-hmm. Well, it's one of the few movies that I can recall, especially in the past 50 years that have been made, that's somewhat complimentary of the Catholic faith. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I can see where the Pope would be like, oh, yeah. This, well, this actually helps our brand a little bit. Well, and apparently it was where you were in the scale, <laughs> you know. So uh, the higher up you went, uh, generally speaking, the more people didn't like it. But if you were, if you were, you know, a foot soldier priest, it it really confirmed the fight against uh, good and evil. Amazing car crash here, by the way. Absolutely. But anyway, like as you go as you go further and to 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 go into a movie that uh, not a whole lot of people talk about that I dearly love that most people dearly hate deal of the century where yeah you're about you're you're in a very yeah, small group I know yeah but uh, um, Ray who's played by Gregory Hines mm-hmm. is someone who goes through like a a rebirth conversion and dedicates his life to Jesus Christ and he becomes very conflicted with being an arms dealer right and all of that is portrayed very positively by Freakin yeah I mean Freakin sure seems to be an interesting um, split between sentimentality and cynicism. I mean, I, I I do believe that he's got a had a pretty strong moral code. Oh yeah, which is not what you would anticipate just based on the surface. Because I have a theory about this film that we can discuss at a later point. That I, is, I'm sure is pretty common, but this is amazing. Yeah, this is actually it's it's, it's this the car crash is what we're, we're watching at now, and and what I was going to say was like the the car being overturned was like a visual metaphor of what was happening to to Scheider. like his world was being overturned by this whole down. yeah, and the blood and money like you couldn't get any more obvious than no, it's uh, it, it's gonna here. we're gonna bang you over the head with it, but it's really well done. Yeah, and I, I believe this was shot in Philadelphia. That. Sounds right. And again, even if it wasn't, it's portrayed somewhere. This is not a backlog backlot studio. English, I speak it. Well, and you get the idea from from that car chase, and um, not so much in The Exorcist, where things are, or I mean, they're shooting in Georgetown, which is pretty upscale. Mm-hmm. But definitely, the French Connection was known for this, and and cruising too, which is they were Friedkin had had just. The idea of showing not the worst part of town, but using the worst part of town as a, as an aesthetic, as a, like a cinema verite type of yeah. I mean, he style. is he's definitely showing us the dirt under the fingernails. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to show like a holdup in a in a you know quote unquote nice Catholic church, like they didn't pull it off in a in a cathedral that was the seat of the well, archbishopric. It but 
Well, the thing that's interesting is it's not the cliche. It's not. It's 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 not. It's not a gambling thing. It's not like they're knocking over a high stakes poker game. It's not a bank robbery. I don't recall ever seeing a direct theft like that from a church, regardless of the faith. Now I'm sure it has been portrayed, and I'm just not remembering. Yeah, nothing or, or comes to mind. It. Yeah, but it's it's a, it's definitely done on purpose. Now that could be because it's the copper tone girls in the back. Is that Jodie Foster? I don't believe so. I think Jodie Foster her copper tone when she was she a was child. in the sixties. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's Marilyn Chambers. Oh uh, no, she was yeah, Dove. She was Dove. Yeah. Oh boy. But the fact that we I know that. I couldn't tell you about this. Yeah, but I know about yeah, Marilyn Chambers. <laughs> and he just looks like hell. He's had a rough day. Yeah. And this is not Warren Oates. That. But. That looks. It looks like Warren Oates. It looks like Warren Oates. Actually, uh, when I saw the trailer for this. Mm-hmm. I you got excited. I was convinced that that was <laughs> Warren Oates. Yeah. Because I haven't seen this, I think, in three years. Yeah, like I said, I mean, my problem was. I thought I'd seen it just based on, like I said, YouTube videos or whatever analogy. Maybe it's, the, I'm sure it's in uh, the Longbarn Scorsese history of American cinema. I'm sure there's clips of it. Just seen enough of it and tangentially know enough about it. It's like, oh, yeah, I've seen that. It's like, oh, no, you haven't. Well, and when I was a, when I was a kid and, and William Friedkin was becoming, particularly because of our age, it was after after to live and die in LA mm-hmm. is, is when you really started to, to hear his name, but the exercise for, for our age group. Yeah. But then when you, I mean, everybody, and I mean, everyone I know has seen the exorcist. Oh yeah. The, and, the only people I know who haven't seen the exorcist are people who are younger than 20. Right. Right. Yeah. People of our age group. Yeah. Everyone's like, everyone's we, seen it. I think the second or third time I had seen it, we, we rented on VHS and I, and I watched it with a group of like 20 people at a mm-hmm. house party. That is taking you back. Yeah. Back when people used to get together. Yeah. Social events. Crabs eating themselves. So the, you know, the, the, the knowledge of, of, of Friedkin and and his history, if you had just a cursory knowledge, you you knew that he had done this film that was a bomb. Yes. This film that was not successful. It's what it's known for. Right. I mean, I put in my letterbox review that to a certain degree, this is viewed through the same prism as Heaven's Gate. Right. It's Which just, is not a bad movie. Well, this is a lot better in my opinion. Oh, sure. But sure. you're right. It's just, it's not a bad movie. It's certainly not worthy of the scorn. And Sorcerer especially was maligned, criti- well, not criticized, but ignored, which is worse. Yeah. By the viewing public. Yeah, it would have been better if they hated it. And I'd read a couple reviews, contemporaneous reviews, and it seemed like you know, obviously you're going to get the highlights, so to speak, from both sides. And it seemed it was pretty split between the two sides, whether this was a outstanding achievement or just a waste of time. But, unlike Heaven's Gate, which was pretty much universally derided. Right, yeah, that was not well-liked at all. And I think that that is a movie that is... Not incredible with some incredible sequences. I think Sorcerer might be incredible. It, well, yeah, I was actually just looking for... Uh, for Ebert's review? Yeah. I would imagine he had done one, but maybe I'm mistaken. But this is pretty much a masterpiece, and it's kind of... Unf- it's not kind of. It's very unfortunate that 
Friedkin's professional career was so badly derailed. And based on what I, you know, interviews with him, it makes sense why it would be because he seems like as talented as he was, he was a great A jackass in many regards. So I'm sure the studios were more than happy to take advantage of this film's performance financially and use that against it. I mean, he was known as Hurricane Billy for a reason. Right, yeah. <laughs> fuck Oscar and fuck Alexander. Yeah, he was definitely somebody who was looking to make an impact. So one of the things that I actually found kind of charming about uh, Friedkin and his personality, because I think I think the first time that I, I had somebody seen... somebody who never had to work with him, yes. Well, yeah, <laughs> someone who didn't have to ever be in his presence or take orders from him is... Uh, one of the first times I'd actually seen him is when I, when I bought... Uh, the edition of the French connection mm-hmm. and on the special edition features, of course, he's all over the place or maybe it was the exorcist and he's just very, so dramatic. And of course, for people who can't tell by his last name, Friedkin was, uh, uh, grew up as an observant Jew. He was bar mitzvahs and he didn't stay necessarily in that faith, but he, he did go to synagogue and he did put a lot of his certainly, certainly. And uh, he was just one of these, but he came from a, like a horrible uh, background. Like his parents were from Ukraine. They were from uh, a neighborhood outside of Kiev. They had, they had immigrated in the 19 teens, 1920s. Oh, yes. Go uh, ahead. Okay. The so pipeline. Apologies, the, the pipeline getting built. Yes. I mean, you and I work, I work in the oil and gas industry. You yes. Used to. And we'd never experienced work with the pipelines per se. But this struck me as a very authentically done portrayal of this type of work at the time. And this was something I was very impressed by. Well, like I say nowadays, this was downstream Mm -hmm. and I did upstream. Right. So we weren't exposed (laughs) to this. Right. Right. Now, the drilling rig sequences themselves, even though, rock on wood, I've never been involved in that type of situation. You never had been. Don't hope to ever be. Not like this, but no. It is portrayed very well. You know? Well, it looks really authentic. And the chains and the pulleys, you know, and anyone working on, on tables sees well, this type of stuff. And the, Well, the nice thing is, is portrayed as kind of what it is. This is just basic work. It's not sexy. It's not exciting. It's dull, it's boring, and it's hard. And then things go weird. Well, and that's kind of the point here is you've got this white-collar criminal from France who's putting in this pump. Right. You know, that's the whole point of it. And and he's looking at it like, oh, I used to be that. I used to be, you know, the guy with the white shirt who ran things, and now I'm, I'm not. And the uh, the eagle that's emblazoned on all their, their helmets um, it's kind of like a Mexican symbol, but it could go for any Latin American. It's a fairly iconic symbol of strength, and that's the government signal. Is the way I that yeah. is their branding for the for the national oil company, the whatever oil country, company. Yeah. whatever country they're in. And I, I remember, so we need to get into wages a, of fear at some point, yeah. because in the wages of fear, like I just saw that just as a stand-in for Standard Oil. Mm-hmm. You know, because Standard Oil was just fucking they were everywhere mon- well, they for were so long. Yeah. <laughs> they were very successful. They were everywhere except for Texas, where they were banned. I did not know that, actually. Yeah. And so this is interesting because they portray the hitman as arriving, and you under. The way it's portrayed is it seems like he's on a mission. 
Yeah, because he he looks nice. He looks nice. He's carrying himself with purpose. So it makes sense to think that he would be. And who's he there to get? And in fact, he's just running. He's like the rest of them. He is there because there's nowhere else to go. Yeah. It's the one place you can hide. By the way, that plane behind him is a is a DC-3. It was the same planes that they used in Normandy, and they stopped making those in 1945 like they did with all the other war equipment. And that's what scares me about this film that was shot in 1976. <laughs> <laughs> that plane is 31 years old, and it looks like shit. And it, it came like down 60. on that. You know, and so there's another one that they fly in. What's the James Bond film that everybody hates? Quantum of Solace. Oh, I'm not that's, that's quite a few of them, but okay. Yeah, there's well, yeah, there's so there's one in that film, and it 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 does not look. It shows his age. Yes. Mm-hmm. So taking those up in the air, I'm sure it's safe. But with Friedkin, you never know because he had a history of putting his actors in danger. Yes, he would be willing to definitely get close to that line. That's at least what I've read. Well, and I had read that, and I I had seen him also in a, in a different interview. Where he talked about the car chase scene in in French Connection, mm-hmm. and how it was just so extraordinarily dangerous, and he oh, was yeah. he was trusting the stunt driver to not hit anybody because they were driving on sidewalks and shit, and they were going I mean not double but sometimes triple the speed limit, and he said I will never do that again I'll never put an actor in danger. In his next film he almost broke Ellen Burstyn's back. <laughs> Linda Blair well, he talked about specifically he wouldn't do that. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll never do a car chase without a permit again. Not until maybe the eighties. Although I'm sure Live and Die in LA was permitted. I Oh I'm sure that was. That's a good car chase scene too. Oh, that's tremendous. Yeah. I, that's on uh, To Live and Die in LA has a special edition on Arrow, Arrow. Films. Is it Arrow? Yeah, i I purchased it oh, that's right. uh, a couple of weeks ago. I highly encourage everybody to get that. Kino just released it in the States. I love Kino. Yeah, they are. Quite quite the good deal, Frank. My next bonus, uh, Kino is going to get a bonus from me. Yeah, their their sale is going on right now. Yeah. So, it, I don't know where the hell I was going with this, but... Oh, sorry. Uh, tw- ten minutes ago. So, uh, Friedkin being raised as a Jew. Yes. And then... Um, is he the Jewish Scorsese? I, that's, I totally believe that. And what I was going to say was like this rough and tumble background that he had plays into his personality as a director. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I, what I mean as a director, not the guy who points and shoots and puts together budgets, but in his, his direction of telling actors what to do, um, he actually uh, slapped an actor. He said he did that three times in his whole career to get a performance out of him. Like, you try doing that today. I, it, you're getting... Uh, you're getting on Twitter and you're going to be blacklisted you're, you're or whatever. pretty quick. Right. Um, but he had a lot of actors uh, say, like Linda Blair said, that he was just the kindest, no, most gentle, fan. an enormous fan of his, and and spent the rest of her career thanking him for what he did for her. Yeah, she seemed to actually have a very protective attitude towards. Yeah, him, which and is, a very positive experience on the extras. Which is just very, it's, it's rather strange. You know, most, I mean, I don't, I don't consider Linda Blair probably the most well. Um, Oh, gosh, what's the right word? Sorry. She, I mean, I, she went through her challenges. Being oh, a sure, star, sure, right? yeah. Maybe not the most well-adjusted for a long time. Right. But she did always seem to be fairly consistent in that perception. And she also didn't have another chance, I think, at, in terms of a vehicle that could, that could properly convey right. her talents. Like, she was in a fucking airport movie with George Kennedy and 
you know, moved into some pre-Skinamax type work. Oh, definitely, definitely. Some some exploitation stuff in yeah. the late '60s, and, and not, she had a fairly significant yeah. drug habit, if I'm not. Yes, and a, a very. Sh- oh, did she? I did yeah. not know that. Yeah. I knew Marilyn Chambers, but I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, uh, again, extremely short. Which you can't you can't even find. Not that I would ever look for such a thing. No, certainly not, because that uh, would be wrong. But the, you can't get them anymore. So, uh, regardless of that, okay, the divergent. <laughs> the uh, okay. So wait, here here's an important sequence. Yeah, the the right. watch. The the watch. The time problem, is running out. I get well, it. Well, it's not only time is running out, but it's if this guy has a soul, this is the one thing that still connects him to his soul, because that was the gift from his wife. That even though he was. Acting objectively terribly, I do get the sense that he truly loved his wife, who seemed like a delightful woman. I don't know who the actress was, and she just did a tremendous, I mean, there was a certain amount of immediate, you know, appreciation from my end of her. It's like, oh, man, this seems like a genuinely good person, which means that she did a tremendous job portraying that. Oh, yeah. So. She's the only good person in the movie, other than the uh, yeah. the older woman in the bar that comes yeah. in later. Well, we don't even know if she's good. She's just there. She's, she's innocent that's, that's from true. far we can tell. There's not a lot of interaction with her, right. that character. But I, I found that a, a kind of a critically important component of this movie. Does that doom him? Spoilers. Right, he, he giving up the watch. Away. He didn't give it away. Does he give away the last piece of his soul that means well, he something? Still, he still has it, but he was willing to. Right. Right, because if I remember right, the guy didn't accept the watch, but he was willing to do that. Now, is that to get back to her? It's on, I, I cannot remember because I'm bonehead, I guess. He, he has amazing eyes. Yes, and this was originally supposed to be portrayed by, or it was written for, I'm going to butcher the name, Marcello Mastrantoni? Yeah. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So, I, I mean, Friedkin's. Dreamcast, which I guess essentially he had, it does make me wonder if he was able to successfully secure all those folks. Would this be remembered dramatically different? And I suspect it very well might have been. Not that this gentleman doesn't do a tremendous job. He actually does a very good job. Well, in this this set, and we, we talked briefly about the sets before, they're not sets or actual locales. This place looks like some place you'd pick up a fucking staph infection from. Like, I would not want to eat in this bar. And I, oh, I've, no, no, no. I've been in the third world, and I, I've been all over um, places that I would, I would really be very cautious of even sitting down in. But this alcohol is, is definitely something you would need. Uh, yeah, to swab everything first before you drink it. Which is what we were told in certain parts of the world of, hey, man, you, you should really drink some of the local beer because the alcohol will help kill all the shit in your stomach that you just ate. <laughs> and Friedkin said that there were there were people on the set that, you know, they got malaria. Some of them got gangrene after problems. A, yeah. So they, they did have serious health issues. Yeah, I mean, when you get around to it watching this movie, you wonder, is this more reckless and dangerous than, say, Fitzcarraldo or something? And the answer is no, but it, boy, it sure seems to be approaching it. Fitzcarraldo is fucking crazy. Yeah, that is probably criminal. Or the, <laughs> the the burden of dreams, mm-hmm. which I have on Criterion. And this this whole setup, and going back to the oil patch, which I don't think enough, enough I mean, people's views on the oil patch have changed over time, but it, it just seems like when I was younger, up in you know all throughout the up into the nineties, 
the energy industry did not have the negative image or black mark that it seems to have now well, in society and politics. It just seemed like another service. Yeah, it was a, it was an industry. Just like any other. It's like anything else. Yeah. And the, the negative part of the film seemed to be where this was taking place, not necessarily what they were doing. No, I don't believe that this is a criticism of the industry at all. It's more of just a function of, this, of defining how dangerous of a life that these guys were living right. because this was the only choice that they had. Now, have you seen The Wages of Fear? No. Okay. So I have, and I do believe that it's overlong. Um, is it Yves Montan? No, that's one of those Isn't that it? even though I was mistaken on this one, I know I haven't seen Wages of Fear. I think it's Yves Montan. I don't think it's. God, what does that actor say? It's, jeez, it's right up here. Hold on. I'll put the. Reaches for reference material. Clouseau directed, of course. Yes. I knew that. Was, so, I can't remember the. He would, Kostos Gavras used him in freaking everything. So, since you have seen both, how similar are the two? I assume the base, the, the spine of the story, I assume, is essentially identical from the jungle on. Well, it is, but it's. It's from the same source material. And as I understand it, Friedkin was not interested in making a remake, even though he liked the movie. Yeah, I'd seen where he definitely defined this as a adaption of the book as opposed to a reimagining of the movie. Right. And uh, Soderbergh did the oh, same the thing. Oh, yeah, this, yeah. You see this. They got it on the Kelly, huh? Yeah. And they're pulling it directly up. That's actually a pretty cool shot. Like it is. It, I, mean, I mean, I was really pretty impressed. I I haven't even been that close to tongs. Like I I whenever I was on the table, I just wanted to stay away from the center mark and the hole. Yeah, the danger area where people break. Right, and you can even see the V door on the left hand side. Mm -hmm. There's no keys, gentlemen. There's no keys to the V door. But that's the thing that I really like. I said this whole sequence here, not necessarily the explosion, which is remarkable, but it's just the portrayal of this as just a job. Well, and that, I mean, that and looks like a pad. I, that looks like a pad. This looks real, and I suspect it is until they, I, <laughs> and this is bug nuts crazy. Yeah. This whole sequence, this whole movie, the action sequences are enough to make this film a classic. And it is very, that's oh my God. great cutting. It's just so well done. Oh, so that was a cut from the guys running into them actually. Yes, I, I certainly hope he didn't go that hardcore where he blew up his cast. But, I mean, they're extras, so maybe maybe they're pretty cheap. But this is Jesus. exceptional filmmaking, and it's virtuosic. Now, this is one of the most horrible things that can ever happen, particularly if you're in a business like, oh, yeah. like we were. Like, I remember coming to work one morning. I was listening to the radio. I was listening to NPR, mm -hmm. and they were talking about, you know, the, the Deepwater Horizon mm -hmm. had, had blown up the, the day before, late in the day. And uh, you just immediately, I was, I was thinking, oh, shit, like, I don't have hope we don't have anybody on that rig right. and right it's like and, oh god i've been out to the horizon yeah I, I was on that boat yeah, exactly. like uh, 18 months before yeah That's, i think I, it was I think like he, the weekend before yeah, it was like he was five out days there prior then, yeah it was fucking crazy which i i you know the movie Deepwater horizon that's peter berg if i'm not mistaken it is yeah and i think it's pretty good mm -hmm. I, I was kind of walking in expecting to hate it and i was like oh okay this is actually pretty good but that's one of the things that Comparing this to that is different because obviously the point of the story is dramatically different. 
but just the portrayal of the work itself. It's like, this is just nuts and bolts. It's a task. It's an industry, which I really, for some reason, really appealed to me the way they portrayed it. Well, and I think that Friedkin has that when whenever he portrays something like uh, the police force and French Connection or uh, or in cruising, for that matter, or how he looks at basketball and blue chips right. or Which how. Is, OK, let's pause on that. Yeah. B- Billy Friedkin makes blue chips. That's just so inherently fucking weird. I mean, oh, I know. I know, he, I know he's a huge he was a huge basketball fan. Yeah. Which is sort of strange. Just because I don't think of the guy who made The Exorcist is a huge <laughs> fan of the Lakers. Right. Although maybe it does make some sense, considering that Jerry Buss certainly sold his soul. <laughs> okay, sorry. That's okay. But it, he he does tend to have like the sort of study and authenticity of whatever it is. Like like in the, the science that you see in the first hour of The Exorcist. Right. It seems very authentic, right? In the in the fact that in in between the time uh, Blatty's book came out and the time they did the uh, the film, an arterial gram came to into existence. So he decided to include that because that would be part of the process. It lends it an authenticity, right? So I was Even actually if it's quite not, happy. It certainly feels like it, right? Right. And yeah. this is, yeah, the, <sighs> this is the only industry that these people have. Well, yeah. And it, it doesn't employ everybody, but like, oh my God, look at these guys. And it really gives you an empathy of what they've been through and how they live their lives. And just, just like the tragedies. Yes. And the irate public. I, right. Well, I would, not we're, unreasonable. Don't when, get me wrong. Oh, yeah. Well, remember when we were kids, there was one that went up in the North Sea, the mm-hmm. Ranger. Yeah, Piper Alpha. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a horror story when we yeah, first got Piper into the Alpha business. Everybody was talking that was about a, it. That was, that was a catastrophe. Don't be that guy who makes that decision. Don't be that guy who gets caught in that, that spot. You know? Yeah, but, I mean, it is a truth of the business that this can happen. It's, it's, it's a possibility. Yeah. And it's not even necessarily due to negligence or ignorance or anything else. Sometimes bad things happen. Now, on this side, it certainly looks like it was a combination of a negligence and ignorance. It wouldn't surprise me. But, again... What's really well done about this is the sequences. You know, the filmmaking itself. We're watching this movie right now without any sound, obviously. And this plays. You understand what's going on. And this is one of the more remarkable achievements. By That's when you know you have a gifted director, right? Is when they are able to visually tell the story. And you can sit here like we are, watch the movie, and know what's happening. So the opening sequences with the four protagonists, not necessarily the case. And that doesn't, I'm not disparaging his filmmaking in that regard. Those are things that you need the dialogue, but also to a large degree, those also work as silent films. But right here, from the explosion on the rig on, this is could be easily just a movie with sound effects and music and be even probably even better than it currently is. Well, and you know what I contribute that to, and, and I'm just making this up as I go along. You know, Friedkin was an enormous fan of Fritz Long in his silent era. Not a surprise. And uh, really liked Metropolis, of course. But, you know, having said that, we've been sitting here watching this for 25, 30 minutes or something. And we it's not a stretch to see what the story is. Like, you can kind of make the story out. And I think that if you, you watch the, uh, not the Testament of Dr. Mabuza, because that's a, that's a sound film. But if you watch Dr. Mabuza, The Gambler, for example, or, or Metropolis, and you turned off the, the inner titles, mm-hmm. you, could, you could make it scene by you, scene you could, and figure out what's going on. Well, absolutely. And this is one of those things where, in my research post-watching the film, was he, freaking had discussed how he bounced around during the different promotions of his films 
and one of the which one of these um, anecdotes that I recall him talking about. This was during his interview with uh, Nicholas Winding Refn. Okay. I assume. Did you watch that by chance? It's about I, an hour long conversation between the two. No. And Freakin talked about how he went. I, it may have been for The Exorcist. I think it was. Maybe it was for uh, French Connection. I'm, I'm wrong. But they were portraying. They were showing the film up on a sheet in some place with like 20 people. And they'd stop the movie. Then somebody would come out and translate the entire thing to tell the audience what was going on. Oh, my God. And they'd restart the film. So he said, okay, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to make a film where you don't have to know what's going on or you don't have to understand what's being said to follow the film. And this was one of his objectives while making this. And I think he did an excellent job. This is, to a large degree, I think this is why in 100 years I wouldn't be stunned if this is considered his masterpiece. That's interesting. Because it is, to a large degree, universal. And it's, I, I think it's the favorite of the films that I've seen of his. The empathy that he places on, on the workers who died is really quite strong. Yes, he, it, it's, it's portrayed very well. You kind of get what's going on. You know, here's the company man flying out to the disaster. Yeah, and this is better than the Jungle Shots in Avatar, frankly. Oh, yeah. Uh, this, is, this is just like a, a horror movie. Yeah, this is everything that you hate and you but fear. But it's also, at the same time, it's beautifully shot. Yeah. I wish I had seen this on 35 millimeter on the big screen. Well, and uh, Werner Herzog did a documentary in Iraq uh, right after the invasion in 1990 when, you know, the the Iraqi army had blown up all the wells. Mm -hmm. And he went there to document a lot of the uh, the fires and the firefighting. It doesn't look too different than what you see no, here. It's probably fundamentally very similar. So this is where the plot turns. <laughs> When they entered this shed, and all of a sudden the stakes are just really well, again, high. Again, to a large degree, this is where the story starts. Right. You know, right. if you were going to give somebody a synopsis of the movie, it would start from this point. And one of my one of my memories that I probably the, the second or third time I watched this uh, is the time I watched it completely all the way through. Is I remember this very very specific episode of Speed Racer. Okay. That was very close to this movie. Okay, and it was it was about uh, these uh, trucks that were taking these crystals that were extremely explosive and were all like packed in Incredibly foam. fragile. Yes, packed in foam, and the truck went over a uh, a road, mm -hmm. and the whole mountain like disappeared. And this was Speed Racer. This was Speed Racer. And they showed us fucked up stuff as kids. Yeah, <laughs> it was great. And the two drivers died. <laughs> yeah, and the shot of the crystals coming up out of the foam. And hitting the front of the truck. With, yeah, they, like, you would think those would be drawn directly from this. The one that I remember in my mind, because I haven't seen that since I first saw it in 1984 or whenever. Oh, gosh. It, yeah. it was, it, when I saw the shot in the act in Sorcerer, it was almost exactly the same. So, I don't know if Friedkin ever saw it. I doubt he watched oh. Speed Racer. Hard to say. The, the the nitroglycerin sweat. And, of course, this guy's sweating, too. Oh, yeah. This is, uh, again, it is so well done. And then he takes that one. Couple drops. Yeah. On the ground. And it's like one of those, when you were a kid, those little. Uh, Poppers. Yeah, the snap. 
Boom. Did that way too close to the shed, in my opinion. I agree. But you know what? It sure is effective. And and this guy on the right looks like he's with the army. Which he, I'm sure he is. Because Lord knows the national oil companies and the government and the army are always very closely related. Yeah. And so this, can they pull off the red adair of extinguishing the fire, you know, starving it of all the oxygen with the nitro, the dynamite, so it begins. And establishing it is an impossible task to get the dynamite from where it needs, where to getting it to where it needs to go from where it is. And you know these posters that you see in the background of the... Uh, I presumed guess, leader. Yeah, the presumed dictator. There's you know there's a parody of that in Moon Over Parador, a great comedy by Richard Dreyfuss in the 80s with Sonia Braga and Raul oh, Julia. Oh, yeah, I know yeah. that movie. It's a great movie, great fucking movie, and I can't I can't get that movie out of my mind every time I see those posters. But I also know that uh, Friedkin was a huge fan of Costas Gravos, and okay. and he loved Z, and he loved uh, Martin Ritt and um, the Spy Who Came In from the Cold, and uh, the Battle of Algiers. And that's that's really influenced uh, his carryover from documentary work into narrative film. Okay. And I I really see uh, a lot of uh, Friedkin's very thin political side come out of Costa Gavras and and that one that he made uh, about the Chilean coup. Uh, well, not the Chilean coup, but murders in in Central America, particularly the coup in Uruguay in the seventies. Was I was I can't remember. Is Montan was in that one too. Army of Crime, State of Siege. I was about to say, State yeah, of Siege, which, I haven't seen that, but I... It's I astounding. It's astounding. It's not as good as Z, but okay. it's like on a scale of 1 to Z, it's like a 9. You know. So here's this guy. Palestinian or Israeli, doesn't matter. He's a terrorist. He's, he's a terrorist. He's on the run. Or a professional driver. Yeah. You know, we can certainly take a second here to talk about... Oh, yes, the test driving. The unbelievable career of Roy Scheider. The unbelievable career of Roy Scheider, who, I mean, I know Friedkin had originally developed the script and the movie with the intention of using Stephen Queen. Right, and right. I think that would have made this a better movie. Well, so I but, was... Oh, go ahead. No, finish your thought. No, no, but it's one of those things where Roy Scheider has been in two undisputed masterpieces right he's been in jaws and all that jazz and they're very different and he does it very differently and those are he's perfect in those roles and i couldn't imagine probably anybody else doing them but i can't imagine Stephen queen in this role and probably being even better scheider is a chameleon and he's always been one of my favorite actors um Steve McQueen in this role, I think he could sell it because right about the same time he's doing Papillon and he was dirty and grimy with Dirt, Dustin Hoffman. I think he that film is a nightmare in terms of scene structure and editing and soundtrack. It's just not it's not put together very well on, right. the, on the backside, but I, I think it's shot really well. Um, but that this production company that that did not Sorcerer, but The French Connection, it was the same 
I think Philip D'Antoni was the producer. He he worked for Steve McQueen's production company. Okay. So Bullet and The French Connection and The Seven Ups were all made by the same people. Mm-hmm. And actually, the, the crew on The French Connection was the same crew that was on Seven Ups, which I think is uh, 76 or 75. Okay. It's really cl- close together. And actually, Seven Ups, just for me, is better than The French Connection. I haven't I, seen, so I don't have it. I love that movie. Yeah, and that's, that's Shider. Yeah, and, I know he's in it. and Tony Lobianco is in it too, who's okay. who's also in uh, the French Connection, and uh, so it's it doesn't surprise me that this is something that was on Steve McQueen's plate, because he was well, he was making films with his own company. As I understand it, he agreed to do the movie, but then he, Ali McGraw, who he had just recently married, yeah. didn't want him departing. Stole to away from who? Is it? Oh, gosh, it was a producer. <laughs> Robert uh, Evans. Yes. And he Not demanded... just a producer, the fucking head of Paramount Studios. <laughs> is, you know, there's some fittingness there because a man like him could not afford to be made ridiculous. <laughs> but, but yeah, McQueen, said, you know, Ali McGraw didn't want him just departing the Dominican for nine months. Right. Right. So he kept trying to shoehorn a way for her to be involved because initially they wanted to right apart for her, but it's like, there's nothing here that works, right? And then wanted to get, I guess eventually wanted to get her as a executive producer, which essentially is just on the payroll for doing nothing, and they wouldn't go for it, so he had to bow out. And I think maybe he did Grand, Grand Prix. Grand Prix, yeah. But it is one of those where... Which is a Frankenheimer film. Yes, that is right. Yeah, which goes back to, like, Freakin was an enormous uh, Frankenheimer uh, mm-hmm. fan and uh, loved his, actually knew Frankenheimer. Frank, as, as if he's German or something, Frankenheim. But one of the things that McQueen was really good at was essentially playing silent. You know, he'd get scripts and he would cross out dialogue yeah. for his characters. And in this movie, it would have played really well, whereas Scheider is really good at conveying emotion, right? That's why I think it works tremendously well in Jaws and Exceptional and all that jazz, which is just an, a hell of a flick. Right, but it's one of those where it's not like he's bad here by any stretch of the imagination. He's not. But if McQueen would have been in it, it I think it would have been even better. I, I love Scheider, and I think he elevates everything that he's in. I am an enormous fan of, of 2010, the year, we oh, made yeah, contact. the year we made contact. Oh, my God. And does anybody remember that movie? Nobody does, but you know, I have it on DVD, and I cannot wait to watch it again. I, I think I saw that before 2001. Uh, I know I didn't, but I know I enjoyed it a lot more than 2001. Yeah. That, that's a slog. And I'm trying to get my son to watch it, and he's like, fuck that. No, I sat through 2001, and he hates 2001. 2010 is dramatic. I mean, to a certain degree, 2010 is aliens to aliens. Right, right. It's obviously, they're not the close to the same up. level, but it's, it's, a, it's a different story. I love how we're going to maintenance the Bluesmobile so we can <laughs> go on one last ride, right? And well, then they're totally Frankensteining. Yeah, and they're... Uh, they're absolutely dumping as much weight as they can mm-hmm. so they don't have to worry about it. So do you know the name of this? Obviously, the name of uh, Shider's truck is Sorcerer, Sorcerer. And the other one is Lazaro, which is a reference to Lazarus. Yes. So I thought that was interesting. It is interesting, especially considering their respective fates. Yes. That's exactly where I was going to that. And the ever, the ever-present fire. The ever-present fire, so, fire and the ever-nerve-wracking nitro. So just so we can be clear, never in a day in my life would you catch me handling anything like this for any amount of time. 
this for any is, amount of money. For any amount of money, yeah. And I will. I'm a complete whore. I will do anything for money. <laughs> I, you know, but I will not just like meet. Oh, there's a number. Said, You'll do this. Yes, for a number. It was. Will you do this? Well, it depends. How much money are we talking about? Because there's I will do reward. almost anything for money. But I, I will not do this. This is like certain death. I mean, I would do it, but the number that they'd have to pay me would be so outrageous that I would really have to wonder if they could actually fulfill the promise of the cash they said. Right. This is just. And so... of course, the funny thing is, we know that it's just an empty box. Right. I mean, there's no danger to the actors, but it's so well done. And they're all just looking like. You buy it. Yeah. So there's this, there's this, uh, this reminds me of this fantastic scene in the remake of Get Carter okay. with Sylvester Stallone, where he's having a conversation with uh, Michael Caine. combination of words I didn't expect you to say, but go on. <laughs> you never saw the remake? No. Okay. So Michael Caine is in the remake too. He plays a bartender. Okay. And so there's this scene where Michael Caine is, is carrying uh, like an entire case of whiskey. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, even then, back then he was in his 60s. Michael Caine was right. always in his sixties. Born in his sixties, yeah. Just like Roy Scheider, he always he's always born old. I guess. Yeah, he's just an old person. And he's carrying this now. You know, like this is just a, an empty cardboard box. Yes. But I might get on. Like it looks like the way that Michael Caine holds it, it looks like it's sixty pounds. Acting. That's what it's called. And in this film, actually, you have to kind of like remind yourself that you're that you're watching Scheider, because he does sort of disappear into the role. And the several scenes in this movie to. To comment again well, on, he looks like Humphrey Bogart. He, do, he, he, you know, there is some definitely, or at least I'm interpreting some callbacks, right? And right now is, yeah, where if I remember correctly, this is where our hitman earns that doesn't earn. He steals his spot. Yeah, he doesn't contribute at all to any of the readying of the trucks or the transportation of the nitro. He, if I remember right, is this the spot? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He jumps in he and just, takes his place. He steals the spot. And this guy who is uh, willing to part with his watch apparently still has his leather jacket. Well, I mean, like I said, he didn't lose his watch. He was just willing to give. He was. It up well, that's right. He was willing to part with it. And they're all uh, looking at checklist. Actually, to a certain degree, this Roy Scheider. There was some. Uh, I wouldn't be stunned. If some of the Indiana Jones inspiration is drawn from some of these characters in their wardrobe. Interesting. We are at the one hour mark. So that was fast. Pretty quick. And this is where the movie really to a large degree starts. Yeah. And I think right about here, maybe just a little bit past this moment. Is where I really think that the the comparison to Treasure of Sierra Madre just kind of ends mm-hmm. because there was a, a competition in between those characters, Walter Houston and I can't remember the second guy and Humphrey Bogart. But after that, uh, that comparison is is based because they they don't turn on each other. Okay, they they pretty much work as a, a oh, team. Wait. Am I totally mistaken? Did you guys watch back? Is that what it was? I don't feel like, gonna feel like a jerk weed if that's the case. That's possible. I thought I thought he did not sell it, but then like when I watched it last time, I thought he did sell it. Right. Now there's one person out there on the internet 
throwing stuff. Someone is listening in their car thinking you dumbasses did not get the point of the watch. I can't believe you. It's like, I am turning off now. Spent too much time talking about uh, Friedkin's obsessive nature with his own (laughs) Jewishness, and you missed the whole point of the watch. So he's going after. He's going. He's trying to find the German, if I remember right. Yeah. Marquez. Who is no longer available to make the journey. So I will step in. This whole replacement theory. What if? So who was driving the truck when it goes up? Do you remember? What? What? When? When? Uh, was. When Lazarus? It, yeah, when when Lazaro. Oh, it's the Frenchman. It's the Frenchman's yeah. driving it. Okay. Because that's the sequence where he's and he's driving it with the Palestinian. Correct. Yeah, he shows him yeah. the watch, which is what I recall. Right, because the hitman is with Scheider and Sorcerer. Correct. And so he almost made it. And it's interesting there. I mean, yeah, he is definitely a Palestinian because he calls the. Uh, oh, he calls the him like, a Zionist. Yeah. This this Jew dog cut his throat. Was the yeah. Subtitle that I just read there. Wow. And he planned it perfectly. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. And these these trucks. I mean, they're straight out of, well, Mad Max is straight out of here, I guess is a better way to put it. It looks like Mad Max in a jungle, mm-hmm. you know. 218. Miles. So, so they have 218 miles. Correct. Yeah, it sets the odometer to zero, and he has to get to 218. Oh, and you actually and hence, see Lazaro on the on the hood there, right? And and so begins possibly the slowest but most gripping race ever. Now on IMDb, which we know that we can all trust, it says William Friedkin attempted to complete the picture without relying on dialogue and telling the story through imagery instead. In the film's press book, Friedkin states that for him, creating a film is a multifaceted experience. Every film is actually three films. There's the film you conceive and plan. There's the film that you actually shoot. And there's the film that emerges in the editing room. And that's, oh, to a certain degree, that's like anything people try to make. I mean, that I could explain so many dinners that I have made. <laughs> I had something in my head, and it changed. And then at the end, it ended up slightly different than what I was anticipating. Let me know when it's pizza time. Yeah, oh, good point. Good point. And there we are. So I looked it up. It was Ethan Montan who was in Wages of Fear and okay. did quite a few Costa Gavras films, including State of Siege. And, of course, he's in the first half of uh, Z. And does this ever work out where someone hands someone a letter and says, mail this for me? <laughs> Just I mean, case. is that drawn from, were Vietnam movies at that time, or I guess probably World War II movies at that time, drawn from that? Or well, was this drawn from those? Well, I just remember, people? like, in Saving Private Ryan, it, it turns out, like, every time, every person who hands a letter over is killed. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much you're doomed. It's the way it goes. So this is not cool, and this reminds me of, like, you see stuff like this on Instagram, like, world's dangerous roads, Mm -hmm. and it's, there's this road in Bolivia that goes around the side of a mountain and has no guardrails, no nothing, and these local villagers uh, volunteer their time uh, to be sort of 
traffic cops on this one-way road, and it just looked like why would anyone want to go there and do this? I, I don't, I don't care if it saves me four hours or just don't go. <laughs> you know, if my mother lives on the other side of the mountain and this is the only way to go, well, then I guess I'm just never going to see my mother again. Like, that's why God gave us cell phones. <laughs> it just looks like a horrible idea. But you know, if you just don't have options available, this is what you do. And now it's raining. You know, obviously the reason these guys are doing it is to escape. Right. So they're in a no-win situation. That church money didn't work out. He so got none. Yep. He got none. You have a, a danger... I don't know who was copying who. I'm sure that if you if you read deep enough into 70s film, mm-hmm. you could probably find someone writing a paper on the evolution of the close-up shot. Okay. Because in the 70s, there's tons of close-up shots that are not meant to be to 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 belay a, an actor's certain note, uh, but rather to be a study of the character. without the delivery of a line. And I'm not sure where that starts, but Sorcerer is filled with stuff like that. And I keep waiting for like a parody movie to come (laughs) out, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah, you you saw that type of thing. Well, at least if I'm interpreting your statement correctly, like you'll see a lot of, I mean, Sergio Leone, obviously. Yeah, well, in in modern day, you know, Soderbergh is known for doing it. And I was just looking at the the guy's cheek and then, of course, his hand on the wheel. And, you know, it's just a montage of of, of very personal items this guy has got. Yeah, so this is the one sequence in the movie that, to me, just, I I don't get it. I don't know why this is happening. This is the, uh, the native taunting playing with the truck drivers i i i don't exactly well, know get them away from the fucking nitro for sure just don't come on man get away from the nitro and then of course if you if you'd seen the previous and here to here 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 mm-hmm. the pipeline right they are driving the nitro right next to the pipeline which i guess you know under these circumstances doesn't matter for them probably not it's just now, I guess you could theorize that since the pipeline, in theory, is coming from the wellhead. Mm-hmm. So so since the wellhead is not producing, there's nothing in the pipeline. True. But I'm not willing to bet that there's not other rigs in the area that's not providing. Yes, pipelines are not a single well operation, generally speaking. Right. They're shared. So this is the first major obstacle. Which, you know, I totally trust it. The engineering looks sound. No, the, the, How could we be concerned with such a, a bridge? Well, this is... So, there was a bridge in The Wages of Fear. Mm-hmm. But I, I do have to say that that was not done nearly as well as this. And, of course, The Wages of Fear was done in, in the south of France under much more well-controlled conditions. Mm-hmm. Much more of a studio picture, so to speak. So, was the, was the bridge sequence in Wages of Fear... Similar to the one over the river in Sorcerer, or well, there were two, just like just okay, like so this, just like this. Yeah, this okay. this corner that you had to take. Understood. Okay. Yeah. But it it this just freaking just ramps up the tension. Oh yeah, this from the time they take off on it's it's right up there with 
almost anything from ratcheting tension, making it worse, making it worse, making it worse. Yeah, like a video game. Entering level 15. Yes. And the truck looks kind of like a beast, so to speak, with it's got oh, those yeah. vents it, on it the hood. Like, and yeah, it's, it's almost like a reptile. It's a, li- it's a living being. Yeah, that's winding its way through the desert. And I do agree with a criticism I'd seen of the movie where the name may have contributed to some of its financial woes. Because when you hear a sorcerer, you certainly imagine something. Well, a lot of people, they were looking for like something fantasy driven. Yeah, which totally makes sense from the director of The Exorcist. Here comes Sorcerer. Okay. But it is one of those where there's a lot of personality tied up in the trucks. Oh, my God. Okay, time to give up. Time to go home. Yeah, exactly. It's just time to walk. Oh, yeah, let's try walking it from here. Or how about we unload the truck very carefully Mm -hmm. and then get the truck unstuck? Yeah, that's a pretty logical solution, although, you know, I don't know if there's anything. There's no good solution. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, no. It's very easy for you to say. (laughs) Why don't we switch? Just be, just be very careful with that pedal and the worst gear shift. Yes. Ever. And I'm sure the clutch is not the most predictable. So this was another thing that I was going to bring up because we both know how to operate a clutch Mm -hmm. and i I think a lot of people most people don't nowadays that's really a weird statement but i'm sure you're 100 percent right well yeah i just no i'm i don't it's just so weird for me it's like everybody knows how to drive a standard it's standard but yeah the answer is most people don't 10 percent, 15 20 20 percent of the population maybe the driving population that would seem all right even in the 90s it seemed like it was sliding it was going away but you could still get them yes but now it's almost impossible. Yeah, and the the idea that he's got to work a stick like this mm-hmm. is is actually it might give him an advantage. Uh, yeah, you get a little bit more. Oh man, that's so well done. Oh my god, I can't. And that's the crazy thing is, none of this is real, right? This is movie magic, one degree or the other. Sure, like there's there's a tower a, so just well pouring rain on this trail. Mm-hmm. Right. And who knows when you see a puddle like this, like, is that puddle an inch or is it? Right. Is it, yeah. How deep are those ruts? And then, of course, you see on the side of the truck that they have rails mm-hmm. to lay down to drive over. Here's, here's a. Oh, yes. The, the fork the in the fork road. In the road. Here's it has, a, it has an arrow. So let's look. At oh, the and this is going back to something. You, uh, which is probably an even smaller percentage of people. They're trying to read a map. <laughs> <laughs> well, even if they had a cell phone here, I don't think that. Yeah, it would there would be no coverage. Yeah. But you just download the map offline. Can you do that? You can download the map to save it. So oh. when you have a service, obviously, and then when you don't have service, you can save it. Or when you don't have service, you can access it. And I don't know what uh, Friedkin was saying with the hats. You got two people with, or actually, even the, even the Frenchman has a hat. Of course, this is an era in which hats, hats were, were yeah, more common. They but were they were baseball hats. Yeah, but in the in the fifties, for example, hats were freaking 
Yeah, they were ubiquitous. Yeah. And just gradually they went out of style. All hats, not Which, just. Except, again, except for baseball hats. Yeah. But you don't wear baseball hats at work. You don't wear them to oh, the movie theaters. You know. Yeah, are you? Sh- well, are you quite you sure on that statement? In an office environment, you <laughs> in know, an office environment, no. Right. I mean, how many offices do you go to, and there are coat racks, the to whole hats, Certainly and things not, yeah. like that, yeah. right? And that used to be very fairly common. Oh yeah, for sure. It was a normal part of standard attire. But obviously, like in a blue collar environment, no, the hats have gone away. This yeah. this will be our hat discussion right in the middle of sorcery. <laughs> Well, they got some pretty slick hats. Of course, a hat would be pretty handy in such environments, so the rain isn't just driving directly on your skull. And these guys are just like Frodo and Samwise. <laughs> they split up. See, I, I don't know why... The argument. Like, dude, if you want to go down that road and kill yourself, fine. Yeah. Okay. I will make sure that I will go down. Because, I mean, you're not getting paid. It's, it's better for me if you die. Yeah, more money to me. Yeah, because it was, seems what, like. is it $80,000 or $40,000 split four ways? It's not enough. Is well, back then, <laughs> not enough. That was a lot of money back, particularly in Latin America. Yeah. That was a whole lot of money. And especially if you have nothing. Then it's like, oh, okay, that's worth it. And I don't know where he found these vehicles. And this was the challenge with commentary like this. It's like, again, this goes back to this might as well be a silent film. And. Oh, my God. Started the, one of the most remarkable sequences of the 70s. I can't. I cannot believe that Friedkin did this. And the first time I watched this, I was. Well, I mean, I was younger, but I was still just utterly amazed. Yeah, you watch it now, and it's 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 unfathomable how they pulled this off. And I watched a little bit that explained it. You know, they tied the truck to the bridge, you know, so it wouldn't slide off for certain shots. But the bridge still, I think Friedkin said, and of course, you know, Friedkin was somewhat unreliable. He wasn't Chimino, though. <laughs> in, right. In, he wasn't uh, just making stuff up. It, that's true. But, you know, he said that the, the the bridge, so the bridge has hydraulics underneath it. And the, the truck, like you said, was, was tied to the bridge. Mm-hmm. But the, the bridge would roll over into the water, and the truck would go with it. I believe that. And Friedkin said that he was in it when it went over once. And some of the actors were in it. He didn't say which actors, but some of the actors were in it too. Now, again, it was it was well, a controlled rollover, but it's just it's, like a Hewitt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, and the fact that I mean, are are they on a time frame? I don't remember I anybody believe- saying the, you got to get there by a certain time because I, I remember it more being just the mileage. Yeah. And I'm sure it's one of those. No, don't get me wrong. To operate a well in the middle of nowhere, you know, you're talking $30,000, $40,000 a day for a crew, and it's bleeding oil, and you want to cap it off so you can hit your production, so you can make your money. I get all of that. Sure. Every day is money. But I'm sure to these guys, yeah, the time isn't as critical as the destination. I would wait until it stops raining, and particularly the wind. Yeah. But these are just the choices that we make, and we're not making this money in the middle of nowhere with, with so much on our conscience. Correct. And also, less compelling movie. Very much so. 
but this is something that I, I didn't we see that where this is getting some kind of showing it it's getting re-released yeah yeah out of the uh the landmark to the landmark yeah on west gray okay which is recently purchased by uh star cinema grill so they bought the river oaks and they bought the landmark as well that's the landmark is the river oaks okay i think of the river oaks theater and the landmark that's further south that's been gone for god knows how many years oh yeah the 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 river oaks is on west gray Yep. Is is uh, that was they opened that in 1939 with yeah, with uh, I think Gone with the Wind. <laughs> it opened that weekend. Any word on when it's getting reopened? As we digress into something that only matters to you and I, uh, I don't know. Sometime this year is what I'd heard. Sometime, well, I was hoping that it would open in time for uh, Fincher's new movie, uh, The Killer. Yeah, because I saw Mank there. Was that the last thing that was showing? Probably pretty close. But yeah, right after the pandemic, it closed. And, and Star Cinema said it's a that they bought it knowing that it would be a write-off. Like, it's going to be their art house distribution theater, and they're perfectly fine with it. They're going to have five employees, well, I mean, four theaters, and that's just they, – they've just accepted that that's the way it's going to yeah, be. Yeah, and to the intrepid listeners who are still hanging on, if anybody is, yeah, Houston is the fourth largest city from a population perspective in the United States, and we don't have a dedicated repertory theater. That's right. That's right. I mean, you have your museum showing, which shows classics, but there's nothing like – some of the facilities in Philadelphia or New York or Los Angeles. Okay. Right. Well, the program, something like that at the MFA versus I could totally see River Oaks showing Sorcerer mm-hmm. or any Friedkin movie, for example. No, absolutely. It makes sense. Yeah. Makes total sense. This hut being washed away. And, you know, it's like, just, yeah, it's just a massive. The production class. design and the production execution is some of these things are just. It's unfathomable. Yeah. Let's build a hut that looks like the the native people built it, mm-hmm. and then let's just flush it down a river and film it for approximately two seconds. Right, and put that into film. Twenty thousand a piece. What he just said. So yeah, eighty grand. It's eighty grand. And no, no, no. It's four. It's forty. 40 per truck? 40 total. I think they're working on the assumption that... Uh, oh, my gosh. This is embarrassing. Never mind. And now comes to a real... Yeah, this the one shot is coming up that just takes your breath away, which is on the poster, which is everyone talks it, it, about. It makes like, sense why this, this is, is the focus. Oh, my God. Of the advertising. You know, it's in all the trailers and taglines it's, it's one of those moments in cinema history you go, how did you do that there you go that's the shot yeah oh my god and the funny thing is that's not sorcerer no that's lazaro yeah. it's just begging to be there's just no way i mean i would be also shocked if Spielberg didn't take some degree of inspiration of this for Temple of Doom. There is a a jungle aspect of this that fits very well into Well in the bridge and yeah. you know cutting the lines. But this is this is all practical and it looks it. I mean there's a a perceived weight you can tell. 
Friedkin uh, did an interview with Joe Dante. Okay. Joe Dante, the director. Yeah. Yeah. Gremlins. Yeah, and I can't remember his partner's name. And the name of the podcast is. Oh uh, yeah, what's the name of that? I forgot that. The movies that made me. Yes. He went on there for a year in a typical Hurricane Billy. Fuck this and fuck that. This is why I became, you know, a praise citizen came. You thought the other side of the wind was shit. <laughs> you know. These are and, my opinions and I am not, af- not afraid to tell you. You know, that's the most entertaining aspect of his personality is how he just does not care what you think of what he thinks. No. Yeah. He's, you know, and I always appreciated that about him, whether, whether I thought he was right or wrong. It probably was not beneficial to him professionally, but gosh, for us, it's provided much entertainment. And Joe Dante uh, talked about Sorcerer, and he just said just like it was just a nightmare. He said every frame, just as a director, to set that up, to plan that execution, and then to, to, to pull it off. He's like, every frame is something that I do not want to do. Oh, yeah. No, it's, I, I, I'm sure it's not as challenging as apocalypse now was but boy it doesn't seem like it's a whole lot of levels below well yeah and that was going on right about the same time because yeah, really, like frame, yeah. larry fishburne said he was 14 when they started that movie and he was 18 when it <laughs> ended <laughs> <laughs> but i mean that's one of those things where in my mind this fits as i said earlier the family that includes heaven's gate and includes Apocalypse Now, in where the 70s film directors who had commercial and critical success were given as much rope as this gentleman here is trying to pull from the truck. And not many of them survived. And some of, some of it was totally unjustified. This is, a, this is a classic flick. This really should be remembered much better than it currently is. Because it does not exist in the pop culture consciousness at all. Well, and on the, on the projection booth podcast by mike white uh, he did an episode on sorcerer which mm-hmm. i recommend anyone who's a fan of the movie to listen to and he actually got william friedkin to come on the show which is kind of crazy and they did like a 30 35 minute interview and friedkin was just so proud of the movie and he was so proud that it was it was going through like a restoration and he he had these great statements like quentin tarantino fucking loves this movie and they're gonna put it on blu-ray paramount's gonna put it on blu-ray did Paramount actually end up putting is it does this have a blue yeah, because I know that there was a lot of effort put into trying to determine who actually owned the film yes because Paramount and Universal were both basically pointing at each other and saying nobody knows who owns it and I know Friedkin was putting a lot of effort at one point into determining that and maybe he was even the actual owner mm-hmm. to re-release it or at least make it available on high resolution i don't understand why this is such a big fucking deal it's almost as fragile as the bridge that we're watching right like if you hear like buck, the the whole experience of making a buckaroo bonsai sequel mm-hmm. has become so convoluted and crazy because there are like three or four people plus three or four companies that cannot decide who actually owns the film right and they're all suing each other which seems inconceivable just how does that happen and, of course, the minute you said, well, MGM was involved, then everybody just goes, oh. Okay, okay. It's like there was paperwork, but they lost it. But somebody <laughs> remembers. And, of course, Amazon owns them now, so you know fucking Amazon's like, we own it. Actually, we own everything. But it's ironic. They, well, we can go into that later. Yeah. 
But the bridge. But the bridge. The, the bridge, bridge is a sequence. metaphor I mean, for copyrights. This has got to be – I mean, this whole sequence here, you know, if you look at the trench run in Star Wars, if you look at, you know, the finale of Jaws. Oh, like the third act. Yeah. yeah. Reagan, you know, levitating oh, the above the bed. I mean, these are as good a sequences – in that time frame has ever been made and arguably and probably rightfully in the history of cinema. I just don't know how, I mean, I, we know how he did it, but I don't know how he did it and pulled it off and, and didn't been, well, it's kill those, anybody. It's one of those things where, yeah, it's like we've read and we've been told how they did it, but it doesn't add up. Well, it's it's like that bridge that's blown in the wild bunch. And there's like 18 horses. It's like they all died. A rider right? with riders on it. It's like, <laughs> Oh my God. It's like, they all died. No, no, no. It was fine. It's like, I don't believe that. Stunt people. And it's it's really this should have been switched. This is the section where they've run across the felled tree. Yeah. In my opinion, this should have been switched with the bridge. The bridge should be the last. Really? Challenge. Well, it's just. I think so. In my mind. I, I love. My viewing pleasure. It is definitely the climax. I love the tree. The tree is very cool. The entire. The entire drama around the tree. Yeah, maybe I'm mistaken. I reserve is. the right to be wrong. Yeah, actually, no. I, I, I recant my previous statement. After getting through that impossible challenge, then coming to this where well, it's I, I see your point, impossible. though. If the bridge were after the tree, because... I think it's probably one of those things where part of the reason this works so well is they all kind of give up. Right. Well, this this stops them dead in their tracks, but right. the but the bridge could have killed them. Right. But this is one of those. I I, like I, said, I totally take it back. This is one of those that to have gone so far, and to be stopped like this by nature. Yeah. Is kind of fitting. And that's why Scheider's losing it. He's like, I made it. I made it. I and went all this way to be stopped by something that I can't do anything about. Although he is going to give it a marvelous effort with the machete. <laughs> <laughs> Smile, you son of a. It's like, okay, instead of going through, we go around. Yeah. And flies buzzing. And, and this... those are, that's probably not ADR. There probably were flies very much buzzing. Well, and then you look at Scheider's physical state in this film and how he just looks sunburnt and just like he's gone through. Look at this shot, which is not a tracking shot. It's handheld. Yeah, I don't know what Roy Scheider weighed. I don't know his physical dimensions oh, at all. But if you told five. me he weighed 143, I'd probably buy it. Yeah, he looks really thin and really emaciated. 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 And free. He's emancipated as well. <laughs> but, I mean, what is this conversation with Friedkin saying, I know that you're all warm and cozy in your hotel in New York when we did the French Connection together. Mm -hmm. But I want to take you out to Dominican Republic and I want to sunburn your ass. It's going to be the worst. Trust and, me. And I'm going to give you a machete so you can just swing wildly at shit. And Scheider was infamously up for anything. But if you if you think of this film mm -hmm. and everything he's done in it, and at the same time, like you were saying before, all that jazz. Yeah. It's the completely 
far on the other end of the spectrum. Yes. It's it's an amazing range of ability. He is he will never be remembered for what he was. But I think part of the problem is he was not a leading man. Right. right? I mean he certainly led movies, but he wasn't in my experience, he wasn't a movie star. People didn't go see Roy Scheider movies. Mm-hmm. They went to go see movies Roy Scheider was in. Well, I think that was the big problem of the Seven Ups. And, and probably right. and, and the argument I, I was making was that's the problem. That's part of the problem with this movie is that it's Steve McQueen, isn't it? You would everybody would go to see it. Some percentage of people would go see it. It would have been higher. You want to see Star Wars? Do you want to see Sorcerer? I don't know if anything would have been Steve McQueen, or if even if they, especially if they had changed the name. Even if they've kept it, the wages of fear was Steve McQueen. Yeah, that would have drawn some people, people. Some some percentage of the population would have shown up that didn't. It yes, of course, I agree. Star Wars still would have steamrolled it's it. Still, yeah, sure, <laughs> it would have been the fish called Wanda. You know, but but it was a different time. Like, do you remember that that photo I I texted you a couple of weeks ago about that marquee that had? Yeah, you know, it was one weekend in nineteen eighty eight or eighty seven, and it was fucking crazy. It was like Lethal Weapon. Um, not Flatlander, The Lost Boys, and there were two other movies that weekend. They're all playing at the same time, and that was like every weekend for twenty years. Well, you had huge movies like that. Of course, you know, yeah, it was uh, Lost Boys, RoboCop, Predator, and Full Metal Jacket. Right, right, uh, right. The argument would be made: at least two of those are Stone Cold classics, and if not all four. Right. Well, Lost Boys would be tough to call a Stone Cold classic. Oh, it's going to have a lot of. But affection. it's a memorable film. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's a memorable film that has a lot of affection. Calling yeah. it a classic might be going too far. But but people know that movie. Correct. Well, well, that's the problem, right? We're going to be locked into our own heads because I don't know if let's just take twenty five and younger, right? They wouldn't know the Lost Boys. No. Unless their parents had shown it to them. Or possibly Lethal Weapon. Right. And this one, well, this one's Lost Boys, Robocop, Predator, and Full Metal Jacket. Robocop, they would know. I bet you they'd know Predator more than they know Robocop. That's true. But so, they, would, they would know Robocop just because of the remake. Like, oh, that was the first one right. that I haven't seen. Right. So my speculation is that if they're not somebody who is watching films on the regular, yeah, they would know Predator. Robocop, Full Metal Jacket, then Lost Boys. That makes total sense. But it's also one of those things where, who knows, in 25 years, people may be sending a marquee around to their friends saying, hey, remember back when we had Avengers Endgame? Right. And yeah, whatever else. Now, this, this, no, that's totally true. This sequence here I found I found remarkable because it, it is true. It, it, is, it is the MacGyver sequence of we have to find the right things in order to make this work. But I do remember the first time I saw this thing. What the fuck are they trying yeah, to I do? Was, like I was, I was lost. initially somewhat puzzled. It's I like, was completely lost. Like what? And they're looking for a specific type of stone, which they hit well, together and will spark. Size. Yeah, and a size that will spark. Mm-hmm. And then the entire rig. I was like, "What are you going to do with the rig?" And like, "Okay, you're going to drop a stone on a stone." It really took me, like, until they actually grabbed the nitroglycerin and brought it to the tree. That was when it finally dawned on me, oh, they're going to blow it up. I, I was, I don't know what the hell was going on. And maybe it was just, you know, the idiot in the theater or my living room. Well, I mean, it's one of those things you're so 
tied up in the events as opposed to thinking about it. But when you see hundreds of movies or thousands of movies, you get to know how movies go and what movies do and how they're structured and what plays out. And to actually be genuinely lost, even for 90 seconds in the film, is actually pretty rare. It, it is. I, I, I knew what they were doing, though. No, you, I, well, I mean, to a certain degree, it made sense to me. It's like, oh, okay, now is why we understand why the... Yeah, I, 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 this sounds bad since I don't know any of the characters' names. Right. Which is right. absolutely terrible if someone say the Palestinian. <laughs> He's, I mean, but he was established as an explosive. Oh, explosive there you go. Right? Yeah. So I kind of knew what they were going at and what the objective was. Now He's the bomb well, expert. That does not play well these days. No, yeah. that's right. I'm like, okay, it. this is yeah. not a great sound, but it is one, that's, this, this is the story. So it is one of those where this was the word I didn't understand. It's like, why is he cutting off? His pocket. I certainly hope that the only thing in his pocket is air, sand. Right. Right. That's Just the, like Indiana Jones. Yeah, that's the one where I was like, I don't understand this component. But then it's like, oh, this is the timer. This is a mm-hmm. remarkably clever timer. It took me a while to figure out that. And of course, as a bomb expert, he would know about timers. Correct. It's actually that's actually pretty smart. It's it's actually really clever, or we're really stupid. Could be both. <laughs> Could be both. Our prejudices aside, <laughs> that's a pretty smart idea. Right. Well, our ignorance aside, I suspect. Yes. Like, I've never had to make it. Well, I've never had to make a fuse before, so. But I was like, oh, yes. And that is one of those things where, gosh, dog it, you miss things like this, where it's like some thought and ingenuity, excuse me, went into the story. Yes. And someone sat down and said, okay, either this is something I just thought of, unlikely, or something I've heard about, more likely, and incorporated it in. And do they have to bring the whole box? Because they're just using... Seems unlikely. Yeah. But, of course, it may be safer to transport the whole thing with yeah. some degree of security. Yeah. Of course, they do use the whole package. Well, it's also a situation where they may not have a choice. Yeah. Because, I mean, not all of them are good. Actually, it's the the sweat that was established as the explosive component, and a lot of the TNT had completely dried out. Right. Oh, my God, I would not want to put my faith in that polyurethane container. <laughs> that, you know, wax paper or whatever. Yeah, I suspect it's wax paper. Yeah. I wouldn't have kicked the box off like that. No, hell no. Just the tension mounts. And how did you draw straws to become the helper in that one? <laughs> one person from each truck. Well, the bomb expert makes sense. Yeah. They're <laughs> running like hell. <laughs> Forget this nonsense. <laughs> Balls. But at this point, they're good. If it blows up now, huh? Dude's, dude's dead, but we can get by. Yeah. And how pissed off would you be if you had a mechanical failure? I kind of expected it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Those trucks, gotta, they have to be so uncomfortable. Oh, I don't think anything about this film was comfortable. Well, see there, the name Sorcerer was on the bottom of the door, and the tree blocked the shot. 
No backup cameras? Yeah. This is crazy. I mean, it's probably like a lot of things that are incredibly dangerous but remarkably safe if you know what you're doing. Yeah, as long as you operate within a certain set of parameters. And you know what you're what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. He's gonna punch the bag. The timing mechanism is really Yeah, like I said, that's it's like a mercury switch. Super clever. And what I like about it is is there's no conference beforehand explaining to you yeah that, that's the nice thing the audience is understood to be able to understand what's going on they they assume you know the filmmakers assume you're, you're gonna figure this out and frankly if you can't you're you've got brain damage i really do think i resisted this thought for several years but i really do think that it should have been called the wages of fear um I think or so. some other title. Yeah, Sorcerer is a bad title. And Wages of Fear is... it's Yeah, it's perfect. Of course, it's... Oh, my God. Super awesome. <laughs> Explosion's cool. You probably shot that at like 36 frames per second or something. 54. 120. <laughs> Peter Jackson level. Yeah. No, I... Wages of Fear is pretty pretentious sounding. It does. It sounds like a French film from the 50s. It does. It sounds very similar. Mm -hmm. But it's better than Sorcerer. It is. But, you know, Friedkin did not have that. He didn't have that monkey on his back. He didn't have a whole lot of people walking around saying, that pretentious directing son of a bitch, well, Billy did. Friedkin. He did, but they were... He didn't hear anything. They were, they were talking behind his back. Or he I was mean, such a strong personality. He made he one of the care. most profitable movies ever made. I mean, calling him like some freaking art house cinematic cinephile right. psycho, that, that doesn't fit with his persona. No. Well, that's the thing is he wasn't... Uh... I mean, his movies are popular entertainment. Mm. Again, blue chips. Yeah. You know, and let's... I hate this film. Whenever, whenever I think about it, I roll my eyes. Jade, yes, which is his his only, in my opinion, his only <laughs> bad movie, right? But but it's got Angie Everhart. It's got a couple stars because of that. Yes, but it, it's only bad, in my opinion. This is just my opinion. It's only bad because of the lead, David Caruso. I just I think he's extremely miscast, and I don't know what that movie would be with with a with a different actor. It wouldn't be worse. It could not be worse. It Unless could it only be better. I mean, that would probably make it worse. <laughs> but that that being the case, mm -hmm. you know, that is that is a film that was was not an art film that was marketed to be a very popular legal oh, yeah. drama. You know, I mean, that was trying to catch on to Basic Instinct. Yep, yep, the whole erotic thriller. Sliver and Joe Estrahaus, and it was. God, I miss those movies. There, there was a certain time for that genre, and of course, um, well, what's her name? Karina Longworth just did a whole series on erotic thrillers. I haven't listened. Like I know you sent eight me or nine weeks. episodes, and she covered Jade, which I thought was okay. Linda Fiorentino is in yeah, that. Linda Fiorentino, yeah, yeah. 
And of course I hadn't seen it since I saw it in the theater. And I was like, oh my God, this is dog shit. I can't believe William Freaking did this. <laughs> like I was really astounded at how horrible it was. It had one good car chase scene in the middle of the film and that was it. And Angie Everhart. Yes. Oh, this is it, isn't it? Yeah. Oh my God, here it comes. And, and of course, time's it is, up. This is the thing. Well, time's up. Time's exactly. Up. Yeah, I want to get back to my wife and... The tire is just, oh my God. I, I rewound this like twice. Yeah. Three times. The cases going forward were just... Yes. And the axle... The Just truck is fucking disintegrated. The instantaneous destruction. And they see they see the mushroom cloud. And they know. And And the funny thing is not the funny thing, probably the important thing is there's no sentimentality about it. Right. I mean this is just this is actually a very good thing for, for them. these two gentlemen. Yeah. Gentlemen's a bit of a stretch. No, it that's true. Pipeline is buried by the landslide. Mm-hmm. So they have to drive over the landslide. Well, and he's he's sick. Yeah, he doesn't look right. And I I can't remember why he's sick. Don't drink the water. And look at this. Like, I mean, he already looks dead. Scheider and... Oh, oh, they caught up. Yeah, it yeah, is they weren't in, That's one thing where it's definitely framed weirdly. Because when they look back at the explosion, you think they're looking back. Right. But they are not. Because they, were, so on, they is, were on the hood. Yeah, but it, it's, yeah. it's framed in a way that you think they're ahead. Which is probably just, I guess, just an error. Right. Well, then, then that makes sense. If they're on the hood and they're looking forward, then they're looking up the road. But the shot just makes you think that it's looking back. Yes. Okay, this is what happens to him. He gets he gets shot. But he doesn't look good before oh. this. You Shider's character? No, the the hitman. Oh yes. He doesn't he doesn't look good. No, well they both look pretty terrible at this point. Yeah. Can you imagine what that blast would do to your ears? Like the tree trunk blast? Like oh, yeah. oh my god. In the shockwave. Guess he wants the hat. And then the question is, well, initially I wondered if they were purposely targeting the truck because they knew the contents, but I guess they did not. I wonder bread, northern tissue. <laughs> <laughs> but the revolution would absolutely benefit from these Oh, kids. absolutely. And unfortunately, the man who knows how to handle it is no longer around. Correct. We'll kill them in the road. See, he's something. Something is all. So this sort of makes me think something's already wrong with him, and he already knows. Yeah, he's that something's wrong with him. He just. Not looking good. He's not feeling good. So I think that he's thinking, I or can take this risk because. Or maybe it's one of those where he is playing it up. Oh, to yeah. To get his chance. 
do it in the road. <laughs> no, they probably. This is another thing. Maybe they do know because they're they're questioning who's going to drive right. it. Right. So maybe they do know what's in but the back. They they don't know until he looks. They just see a bunch of dirt, dynamite. Oh. Oh my God. Yeah, it's a it's a shockingly violent sequence. That's. I think that that's the roughest thing I've seen Scheider do, and I've seen him blow up a shark. <laughs> but he does, you know, one of the things that I love about him and his performances is he does come across as sort of that that everyman. Yeah, he's he's really quite good at that, and that's one of the reasons why I liked Mel Gibson. Okay, he just had that sort of in Tom Hanks. They have that everyman the you know, the guy next door type of feel to him. Certainly more than Stephen Queen, although. Certainly more than Stephen Queen, yeah. And this is almost, this again is almost post-apocalyptic. Well, this is almost like a like a dream sequence. Well, that's the thing I've wondered. Like they're on the road and he starts hallucinating. Yeah. And Friedkin's doing something with the colors. Like, it's almost like that yeah, sequence in Vertigo, you know, where he's mm-hmm. looking into the mirror and the painting. And, of course, Friedkin is a huge fan of Vertigo. And if you ever want to hear, like, one of the best commentaries yeah, ever, he did for that. pick up the Blu-ray for Vertigo. Listen to William Friedkin's commentary on it. It is simply amazing. See, this this scene here. It's otherworldly. Yeah. And he's just so close to the end and you're just he's he's tired and exhausted. He's been up for what, three days straight. I don't think that it needs the flashbacks. But I I think it pulls you out of the secret the hallucination. It does, but that this is where I started to wonder are all four of these characters already dead? Oh. And this is Limbo. And they're on their journey to wherever it is they go. Life flashing before their eyes. I'm not, I'm not sure. So those replays were blown up because they're more grainy. Mm-hmm. The spider web in his room. I just saw it as his his life flashing before his eyes. No, I I think it is. And then also descending into madness, but. The lunacy of it. Blood around the watch. Oh, my God. Him going in that street kind of reminds me of uh, Breathless. It is French New Wave inspired. And the word for most obvious comment. And here, this killed me the first time I saw it. When he uh, he runs out, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure why he's 
checking he's lost. Because he's supposed to be there by now. I think so. Or it's, what was the mileage? It was over. It was over the 218? Yeah. And of course, he doesn't want the dead guy in his cab. No, that's bad juju. <laughs> and then it breaks. Yeah. Oh, that's when he realizes. Yeah, you know, this is when he looks at the mileage. It's like, wait, what's going on? Pulls the choke out. 216. Yeah, so he's not quite there. 218. So he's two miles away. He's two, he's not over. He's two miles away. But to hear, like, he's, he keeps hallucinating. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I know that's a reflection on the glass, but it mirrors what his hallucination. And what the fuck is that over on the horizon? It looks like some ancient ship that's jetting out into the sky. Well, that's not the uh, sky. Isn't that the Derek? And the Derek is pushed over? Yeah, the Derek burnt up and fell. That makes a lot of sense. And this shot here, the emerging out of the darkness, this is kind of like coming coming out of purgatory. Yeah. Like he's emerged out of the other side. But then, of course, the reverse shot of what you see what's going on the pad mm-hmm. just makes you think, well, he's still, now he's in hell. Yeah, he's going into hell. He is carrying his burden. course he probably hasn't eaten or slept for 48 hours oh my god i mean he just looks because how long did that 218 miles take oh yeah he just looks beat and when he falls over it's just so fitting where he just drops in fact he it probably would have been better not to complain if he had if he just died right and just rolled credits yeah yeah, and then and then you pull his body out the back of the truck like you did all of the oil deck. Something like that. The yeah. Derek workers before. More years. Nothing has changed. Moon over Parador. <laughs> are you going to vote blue Sims or are you going to vote white Sims? What do you see? Just a catastrophe. Now he's got 40K all for himself. And this guy with the oil company actually reminds me very strongly of the same character in the Clouseau movie. It's very, it actually, okay. I, I actually think that he was. That's a pretty straight. Yeah, it looks like. A, yeah, I think so. And, and actually the guy in the Clouseau movie actually spoke English. Huh. And, and those sequences were in English. Yeah. Okay, we're going to pay these guys and. We're going to pay them well, and in case they die, we'll pay their families. And, and it, was, it was done in very fluent English. Okay. And then, of course, when the other sequences, he spoke French. All the surplus equipment. There's nothing anywhere that doesn't look beat to hell, disaster relief. Yeah, none of them look like, none of them look like props. So they gave him a passport from the 
from the country, wherever whatever country he's in. So I guess he well, is it, he uh, bought his citizenship. Well, I think that's how they're getting him out of there for sure. Whether he a new a identity, or, yeah, yeah exactly. a citizenship and a new identity, and that's how he. Take that that cash. Take you to our bank. So that's probably in Panama. I'm just guessing. I thought it was in, well. I, <laughs> well, I Panama was, in, was was infamous for taking any anyone's money from all over the world. Right. Then. While Noriega was there. Well, I mean, right now Panama's currency is a dollar. Our dollar. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's not shocking. In six months' time, who knows? I may not have no choice. And this, this kind of, I won't say threw me or whatever, but but it's the one piece of the movie that I, I suppose I don't really understand is mm-hmm. is the dance. Right. And that's one of those things where the end is very ambiguous, which is something I actually like. And isn't Managua? Isn't the capital of Colombia? Uh, no, Nicaragua. Is it Nicaragua? Okay. Mm-hmm. You that's, know, that's the thing where I do wonder if we go into, you know, and I'm obviously trying too hard. Is it going into a spiritual thing there? A phase or right. another hallucination or. Or is this all metaphorical? Is it a state? And that when he went into the canyons, he never came out. Right. Or maybe when he dropped on the road, he did die. And this is just a. This is the afterlife because they're all dressed in white. Mm. Are they angels? Eh, and they're likely. cleaner than they were in the beginning of the movie. Which makes sense. He does get a shower after that arduous task. It even looks like he shaved a couple of days ago. <laughs> <laughs> but he just looks like hell. It's pretty haunting. Roy Scheider. And again, this is one of those where it would work very well if they just cut down. Yeah. So I do think this... The one, you know, because I'm an artist, the one thing I would do is probably trim. There's a couple spots where it's like, okay, it would make sense to end here. That I do think that the dance doesn't, at this point in my viewing, enhance the viewing for I, me. I don't think the dance works. I think I think that if it if it skipped the dance and it just went to the cops showing up, not there's not the cops. It's, not it's, the, cop, it's, it's the, the other basically the gangsters who show up to, then they're looking for him. Presumably, presumably so. Yeah, are they looking for him. Or are they too exiled? This is what, oh. what's the distance between then and now? Has it been a year, six months, two years? Undefined. Well, it might be like a Marcellus Wallace situation. Of, I, you know, well, I, I, I wonder if this is like El Rey from uh, from Dust Till Dawn. Okay, that's what they're trying okay. to get to. It's this is the terrible, you know, place where at least you're not going to get bothered here. The terrible place where at least you are safe. Yeah. Well, I thought for sure those guys were were up after him, they, and it just made more sense if they just cut the dance out. Like I'm, I'm not exactly sure. You know, I suspect that they probably are, but that's the thing that is nice. That is, there's ambiguity is a better word. Uh, definitely edit that. It's okay. We're drinking. That's yeah. That's reasonable and fair. And there's this long extended pullback shot to the reveal which of the he's, taxi ride. Yeah. Of the next batch or fate coming to find you. It's like an earthquake Which, hit this town. I mean, that's the whole thing is this movie is, is this fate? 
Yeah, see, I don't, I don't recognize though. That guy is the guy that hid him. He's the guy who got him out of there. So it does not make sense that he came here to kill him. It's like they came here to recruit him for another job. Or they too have been exiled. Or they're just joining him in this shithole. Right, or that goes. That makes more sense. I thought I, it was I, a, I thought it was a hit job, but yeah, it, they've been exiled by way, now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. Is there a better name than Waylon Green? I don't know. Waylon Jennings. Eh, Jennings I'm not big on. <laughs> but Green I could go Waylon Green. Almost dedicated age. He was Friedkin was a huge New Way fan. Okay, we need to wrap this up and decide what we're gonna do next. So thank you so much for joining me for hey, Sorcerer. All right. You guys uh, hang around uh, another month. We'll have another one. Thanks for hanging out with Dave and I as we watched Sorcerer. If you love what you hear, please leave a rating on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. You can always drop me a line at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. And you can find me, my books, and my blog at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time, God knows where.
thought highly of the work of H. Lee G. Fuzo, and I loved the film. I did not want to duplicate what he had done, except to take the same theme, and but four different characters and completely different events, except for the fact that four these four men were in two trucks driving loads of dynamite to an oil well fire. Mm -hmm. I took the same basic story as you would if you were doing Hamlet. Right. But you could do Hamlet in modern dress. You could do it uh, in a different setting, whatever. And that's how I chose to do uh, Sorcerer, which was based on Le Salaire de la Fear, Wages of Fear. Mm -hmm. and, and, like, and here's the point. Right. This was about the idea which I felt was extremely valid at that point in my life. And that was the fact that each of the countries of the world were beginning to enter a conflict. And yet nuclear energy, the ability to explode the entire world, had come into being. And the world was endangered and threatened by the possibility that it would blow up if the nations of the world did not cooperate. If they didn't cooperate, even though they didn't like each other or like each other's policies, they would all blow up together. And that thought struck me very powerfully around that point in my life. So now you travel around the world, you've chosen this as your next film. This is gonna be your next William Friedkin production. You come back to Los Angeles, how do you get a movie like this financed? Oh, at that time they would have financed my nephew's bar mitzvah.